Here we go, the official show on the Fish Stripes podcast channel, presented by Symbol, the stock market for sports. It's Eli Sussman, managing editor at Fish Stripes, as usual, here to talk about your Miami Marlins. We are a little bit more than one quarter of the way through this 2021 regular season. The Marlins here on Thursday, standing at 19-23. and 23. Overall, just a few games out of first place, a few games out of the wild card, only a few games up on last place. Everything is still wide open at this stage of the year. We are honestly at least one month away from any possibility of a sexy trade and really two months away from that serious action that follows the all-star break. But we've reached a point where I think you could say this about every team, but especially with the Marlins, that the, the pieces they have right now don't fit together ideally, that this is not the combination of players that will be together if this team is going to be a contender all season long, that things will look a lot different later in this summer, no matter what, uh, just based on some of the cracks that are showing in this team, despite the overall fact that they've been relatively successful. And at the very least, I understand the obvious fan interest to speculate as to how exactly this team could change as things moving forward. That's why most of this episode is going to be about trade value updates, going through a lot of individual players on the Marlins, as well as several on other teams, and approximating exactly what those guys are worth on the market right now, and what the Marlins would have to do to acquire those players, or how much they would how much their own players are actually intriguing to other teams, getting a realistic sense of where things stand as we're still uh, relatively early on in the year, but understandably looking forward to seeing some big changes that could uh, change the trajectory of this team either for 2021 or uh, how already making some decisions about how things line up in 2022 and beyond. To lead off the episode, we focus on the two guys that should be top of mind for every Marlins fan right now. First, at the major league level, coming off yet another win, another quality start, uh, a career start in several aspects, left-hander Trevor Rogers, who, as covered on the small pod this morning on the same podcast feed that from Daniel Rodriguez, he had a great outing, going a career-high seven and two-thirds innings pitched against the Phillies, striking out eight, being pretty terrific outside of one solo home run that he allowed, and thankfully the offense gave him just enough run support in this one to hold on for yet another Marlins win. Despite the run, his ERA ticks down just a little bit, even lower from where it was entering the game. He is, by any measure, one of the best pitchers in baseball, and you know me. I'm someone that is hesitant before crowning these guys. I I stay away from hyperbole. I like to see that sample size play out. I like to see how some of these young players adjust to the league, how the league adjusts to them. And at this stage of the season, Trevor Rogers, even combining last year, only 16 total major league starts. So that's essentially a half season's worth of experience. There's a lot to to change uh, with him moving forward. We have not yet figured out exactly who he is, but it is safe to say that he is a phenomenal player, that you like, you can already have this discussion about whether or not he's the best pitcher on this Marlins team, 
and whether or not there are many left-handed pitchers in all of baseball that do what Trevor Rogers does. And you could see it even going back to 2020, and especially during spring training, that he had all the ingredients, that he had this, I mean, everything that you need to work off as a pitcher is a quality fastball, one that has good velocity, one that has good movement, one that has good location, and one that you can are comfortable using in any situation. And Trevor has always had that, certainly, as he's been in pro ball. That fastball velocity has steadily ticked up as he has filled out that large six foot five frame. And we've reached a point where it's it's one of the best fastballs that any left-hander throws in baseball. That combination of Velo, he topped out at 97 last night, and that is the norm. Almost every start, he's hitting 97, he is sitting in the mid-90s, and he's putting that pitch wherever he wants to against both lefties and righties. The changeup is arguably even better of a weapon that he has. He throws it, again, against either handedness, he throws it to either side of the plate, and the way that he disguises it coming out of his hands compared to his fastball, it is getting so many whiffs and getting him in so many favorable counts. The progress with his slider, and that was his big emphasis here in 2021, is that he wanted to get that up to being a plus pitch. Maybe it was an average pitch coming into the year, and it was probably below average as recently as 2019. The work that he has put into it has paid off. It, it continues to get great results, and with those three pitches alone, We'll see as the years go by whether or not he expands that repertoire even more. He probably doesn't need to. I mean, those three pitches are exceptional, and his understanding of when to use them, why to use them in certain situations, it very quickly has him at the top of the National League Rookie of the Year race. I think as this comes a day after MLB Pipeline updated their rookie rankings, and they actually put Jazz Chisholm Jr. ahead of Trevor, which is something that I respectfully disagree with. Um, I think Trevor is far and away the most impressive rookie in baseball this year. Strikeout rate now at this point, deep into the 30%. Um, and even with the home run allowed last night, only three home runs allowed in 51 and two-thirds innings pitched. That's something that has come up on this podcast is just how critical home runs are to win and losing games in baseball now. And Trevor is so uncomfortable of uh, an at-bat for opposing players. They are very rarely going to barrel the ball against him. And even when they do, there's rarely going to be anybody on base to score when they do hit those home runs, as was the case with Andrew McCutcheon on Wednesday night. So I think any, I I can't really pump the brakes anymore. People that are excited about Trevor, they should be. The one thing that I will point out is that we should focus on rookie of the year. You should focus on all-star because I think he's he's pretty damn close to locking up an all-star selection, which on its own would be an incredible accomplishment for a rookie. A National League Cy Young might be stretching it still, just understanding that this is his first full, full season as a professional not, not just as a major leaguer, as a professional. He came close to a full year pitching in the minors in 2019, but even that workload is uh, not quite the same as what he's on pace for right now. Right now, in tre- trending towards that 175, 180 innings total, and, and that's a lot to ask for coming off this very unusual 2020 shortened season. So we'll see if he gets there. So far, so exceptional. I think any expectations that you had, he has blown past them, and it's... It's such a great development for this team that we're going to bring up Trevor later when talking about the the players in this organization that have the most trade value right now because he has very quickly 
ascended up that list. And the second guy, who's not quite in the majors yet, but is, I think he's come up probably more than anybody else um, in reading fi- the comments on fishtripes.com and reading our replies on Twitter, people are pounding the table for Jesus Sanchez, the Jacksonville outfielder, same age as Trevor, basically 23 years old, and uh, Trevor has reached a point where he's kind of here to stay in the majors, and once Sanchez gets up here, the hope is that he's the same way, that he'll be here to stay the numbers that he is putting up in Jacksonville are mind-blowing to this point, where he is the best hitter in minor league baseball through two and a half weeks of the season, and this comes even despite the fact that he missed a few days, uh, precautionary reasons that weren't specified, held out a few days last week, and he picked up exactly where he left off. As we're recording this, he's coming off a four-hit game, another four-hit game. He's had at least one of those already. He had a five-hit game earlier in the year. That this is nothing new. This is just a casual day for Jesus Sanchez. A 510 batting average this year, a slugging percentage nearly 1,000. 1,000. And it needs to be pointed out in context that playing for Jacksonville, playing on, in these ballparks in on the East Coast, that these are not especially hitter friendly conditions. That that was a big point of emphasis that we needed to bring up when analyzing Marlins triple-A players in the past. They were playing in the Pacific Coast League where the atmosphere is thin, there's so much humidity, the ball flies in those ballparks, and it doesn't necessarily translate to the major league level. When you're playing in the triple-A, what they're now calling the triple-A East League, that those conditions are more comparable to what you see in the majors. Now, the quality of pitching is not comparable, And I'd say the most important disclaimer is that the quality of defense is not the same. Just from watching Jesus Sanchez, I'm not sure if you guys have gotten the chance to on MILB TV, but he has benefited from some questionable outfield route running and decision making, turning doubles into inside the park home runs, turning flyouts into triples, that that alone, you bring him up to the majors uh, with superior talent in that regard, that it's safe to say he's not a 5-10 hitter at the major league level, that it'll come back down to earth a little bit. That being said, when you perform at this level for any sort of sustained period of time, historically, these are the type of players that force themselves up. That's what people want to know is when is Jesus Sanchez going to force himself up? What I want to know is exactly how he fits with the roster if he does come up. So we're recording this on, on May 20. I think it's safe to say that his call-up is not imminent, that you will not see him for this series finale against the Phillies. I, you will not see him in Lone Depot Park for that series against the Mets. Once you get beyond that, if he finishes out this week strong, then he, it's serious call-up watch for Jesus Sanchez. As encouraging as this season has been for the Marlins, um, the depth of their lineup is still a concern. It's one of the biggest weaknesses on this team. And uh, as we'll get to later, one of the things you can't change is uh, it's it's not a whole lot of options you can do about the catcher position that the team did not address during the offseason. Then they lost Jorge Alfaro due to injury. And uh, Alfaro was the one who actually should be back relatively soon. So just a, a tangent on Alfaro is that he's really the next position player reinforcement that's on the pipeline. Now that he has resumed his rehab assignment in Jacksonville, he could be up as soon as the end of this weekend. He could be up on on Sunday. He he only needs a a couple games to catch in Jacksonville to show that he's healthy, and then he'll probably come up in place of Chad Wallach, and we'll see what Alfaro does because he's been a, a 
frustrating player in the past, but also very tantalizing because of the tools that he has and still, uh, I guess, conventionally, you would think about him in the prime of his career. So let's see what happens with Alfaro. But then the following week is when I think potentially you could see Jesus Sanchez. And where would that playing time come? It would have to come, I suppose for him, somewhere in right field, where currently their primary right fielder this year, um, more than anybody else, has been Adam Duvall. But with Starling Marte still out for the near future, Duvall's been playing a lot of center field as recently as Wednesday night. And he's proven to be perfectly fine in center field defensively and a true star defensively in right field. That's been one of the pleasant surprises is how much value he has added to the game with his arm out there, with his route running and instincts out there, that he's been exceptional in that regard. And you still want him to uh, to be there. For for as, as exciting as uh, Sanchez's bat is and some of the highlight plays he does make in the outfield, I think consistently he would not be as valuable defensively in right field as Duvall. But the date to circle to me is... This later road trip, after this one ends, following the homestands, they go back out to a couple American League parks. They go to Fenway Park from May 28th to May 30th. After an off day, they go up to Buffalo to play the Blue Jays for a two-game set June 1st and June 2nd. And as things are trending right now, I would be surprised if we get to June 2nd and Jesus Sanchez is not in the major leagues. Will he stick around in the major leagues as soon as he gets called up? It's hard to say just because of the awkward fit that he has on this roster. You want Duvall in center field. You really can't play. You can't totally bench Corey Dickerson. He's been underwhelming overall compared to the contract that he signed, but he's getting on base more than 35% of the time. He's not really the biggest issue with this offense, though the one like scapegoat that I've pointed to before in a recent article is Garrett Cooper, who... He can play. He has the versatility to play first base and the corner outfield spots. But we're in a year where Jesus Aguilar has taken such. He has stepped up um, to arguably the best performance of his career to essentially lock down first base on a regular basis. And the reason why Cooper, I don't think you want to panic and send him down, look to trade him quite yet, is that, of course, Cooper was excellent as recently as last year, and also because you need some sort of backup first baseman on the roster, and that's what Cooper is. He is really the only guy. Um, in an emergency, you could play Miguel Rojas there, and you can play John Birdie there, but in an, in a, in an emergency, I mean, those guys, um, I think overall, as much as you value the the defensive instincts that they have and the versatility that they don't overall offer the same type of reliability at the position that uh, Garrett Cooper does. So I think Cooper is going to stick on this roster for the foreseeable future. The one potential point where you insert Jesus Sanchez in place of would have to be Isan Diaz, where he had those nice flashes as soon as he got called up in place of Jazz. Uh, overall, he is he's just not performing. He We knew this coming into the year that um, the Marlins may be ready to kind of close the book on him and just understands that he shouldn't have any expectations moving forward, that the bat does not play at the major league level of the way they hoped when they acquired him, and that the other tools are not nearly enough to compensate for that. So Isan hitting 136, he has a couple home runs, very memorable home runs, one off Scherzer, then the Grand Slam as well, 
And that, that's not enough. So he's the obvious guy to send down, especially with Miggy Rowe and Jazz kind of locking down the middle infield. That That's a move that I could see happening as soon as next week once they head to Boston. And I think at the very latest, um, that following series against the Blue Jays, that if Jesus Sanchez is hitting at this level, even if there's not that everyday role for him, you get the mix and match with him in right field and um, potentially... The, uh, the reason that we're targeting those series for him to call up is because they'll be a designated hitter to use to get Jesus Aguilar uh, a rest day at one point, to get Cooper a rest day, to get Duvall a rest day. That for that very brief stretch against Boston and the Blue Jays, that Jesus Sanchez can play almost every day during that week, and we'll and we'll see what he does. And they kind of go day by day from there. Maybe they have to send him down. If it doesn't immediately click, or maybe there's one of those injuries to one of those veteran bats that does open up a semi-regular spot for Sanchez. I think either way, the, uh, we're going to be on call-up watch for him very soon. Not not today, not this weekend, but certainly by the time I'm recording this next episode next week, that his time could finally come. We take a break to remind you that this is a partnership between Fish Stripes and Symbol, the stock market for sports. Now over two months in partnership with Symbol sponsoring this podcast. Uh, Symbol allows you to trade sports teams like stocks and earn cash payouts when those teams win. Use your knowledge about MLB, the NFL, the NBA to buy low, sell high, and profit. They have market analysis directly on their site, on their Twitter account as well. Follow them at Symbol Exchange. You can find more analysis about the Marlins and the NL East team stocks on fish stripes directly, including articles coming up these next couple weeks of fresh updates about getting you comfortable with their platform so that you can invest and win. More than 2,000 plus early adopters are already building their portfolios with Symbol. www.simbull.app symbol.app. That's where you go to create your free account. You could click the link directly in our podcast article or in the podcast description. Use that promo code FISHSTRIPES, all one word, FISHSTRIPES for a $10 deposit bonus. Current Sim Marlins share price is $29.01. Promo code FISHSTRIPES, $10 deposit bonus to help build your portfolio and get started with Symbol. Invest in what you know. Invest in sports. How much would other teams be willing to invest in some of these core Marlins players that we know about? How much would the Marlins be willing to invest in upgrading a catcher, in finding a, a, a successor potentially to Brian Anderson if they don't extend in, in finding a lockdown reliever? Like These are all these questions that will certainly be bouncing around, especially over these next two months once we build up very gradually to that midseason trade deadline. I'm choosing now to update just where these individual player values are and with a big tip of the cap to baseball trade values. Uh, that website, baseballtradevalues.com, it's been a go-to for me uh, well over a year now, probably closer to two years, so that I check it a lot to see exactly how Marlins players stand relative to the rest of the league. And of course, using their trade simulator where you pick out a couple teams or more than two teams, three teams, four teams side by side, and you play around with trade scenarios, you post them to their site and you get feedback on those potential proposals. With the Marlins, uh, this is going through descending baseball trade value. I could abbreviate it as BTV, the surplus value that these players have relative to their contracts and when taking into account the projected level 
of performance that they'll have during their remaining years of team control. And the number one guy, when you sort all Marlins players in the organization by trade value, major leaguers and minor leaguers, you might be surprised at the moment that Pablo Lopez is number one on that list. That's $66.8 million of surplus value. He's just a a tad ahead of Sixto Sanchez at 63.6. And then there's a pretty big drop-off to everybody else. Sandy Alcantara at 47 million, even J.J. Blade, 35.7. Trevor Rogers essentially tied with Blade at 34.8, and Jazz Chisholm Jr. at 33.9. So that's the very top of the list. Um, and they've made some updates since the start of the season. I'd say in most of these cases, as we go through this, these guys are relatively similar value as to what they were entering opening day. Uh, Pablo is a guy that feels a little bit high to me, and I'm someone that that projected he might get some Cy Young votes this season, and I think that's still a possibility, but not the thing, the most likely possibility for him, and we know he's had, uh, during his career, he's had some durability concerns. It's no sure thing that he'll make 32, 33 starts during this season. We'll still have to wait and see exactly about that. Uh, I feel like Sixto is about right. Uh, one thing to take into consideration with him is that right before his injury, the Marlins optioned him to the minors, which means during this period, he's not actually accruing major league service time. And this is a conversation to another day. But I do wonder, the longer this goes on with him not actually pitching off a mound, not actually building up for starting duty, despite what was, I think, a lot of people considered a minor injury, I think you have to start at least suspecting the Marlins might be toying around with his service time intentionally a little bit and eyeing this as an opportunity to get an extra year of control even beyond what they already had. So that's something to revisit another day. And Sandy feels low to me, um, even though as we're recording this coming off his worst start of his career um, and the peripheral numbers will never quite match up to his performance. So that's something just from watching him every single time out. And I think you would agree that the intangibles that he brings um, as a pitcher, um, that he has these ingredients that will allow him to kind of overachieve what the standard projection systems, what his his like stat cast data will suggest. I think he's just special in that regard and should be right up there, very similar to Sixto and Pablo when taking all these ingredients into account. Going a little further down the list, right below Jazz at 33.9 million, there's Max Meyer at 29.3. Uh, Brian Anderson is one of the players, I think, pretty clearly that has suffered the most in his BTV score so far this season, where as recently as spring training, he was well north of $30 million in surplus value, and now all the way down to 19.8. Happy recent birthday to Brian Anderson, and of course, if you've been watching him very recently, he has finally clicked with the bat. He is using the opposite field. He is faring better against a wider variety of pitches that I think rel- I think you will see this value tick back up a little bit as he is showing again all the ingredients that he has of being, at the very least, an average major league hitter, if not a little bit more than that, because of his ability potentially to get extra bases to all fields. Um, and just filling out some other guys that are at least significantly above zero in the system, Edward Cabrera at 16 million, Eliezer Hernandez at 15.4, John Birdie at 9.9, and we'll revisit him in a second, Miguel Rojas at 8.1, Jose Devers at 8.0, Peyton Burdick and Jesus Sanchez both at 7.6. 
again, this site does not update every single day or even every single week this early in the year. They get more reliable at that as we approach the trade deadline. I think it's safe to say that Jesus Sanchez is too low. Um, as recently as last year, before his call-up, he was in the mid-teens uh, in terms of trade value, and they docked him, of course, based on that really terrible but very brief Major League debut. And since then, his performance, uh, kind of everything he is showing as a hitter kind of reinvigorates your your feelings about him moving forward. So he's too low. Uh, John Birdie is too high, um, where I've been a big stan of John Birdie uh, almost ever since his call-up. And I think you just need to acknowledge that he's had played almost as much this year in 2021 as he did in 2020, and yet he is still OPSing under 600. That the walks are there, the, the versatility is there, the top-end speed is there, but the overall contributions simply are not there. He's not hitting as well as you'd like him to, and uh, despite the key moments that he sometimes has as a base runner, the fact that he's already been caught stealing a couple times, that alone um, raises concerns about exactly how much his speed is aging as he's now 31 years old, that despite being a really affordable guy with four plus years, I think actually five years of club control remaining that, I mean, the upside just is not particularly high compared to some of these other guys. Um, I mean, on the other side of the equation that with most of these guys we just ran through, you probably don't want to trade any of them. (laughs) I mean, there's been some momentum in the past for uh, Eliezer Hernandez. I have not agreed with that, but even here in Fish Stripes, Ethan Badowski, um, among others, have said that, you know, he's someone that has a pretty limited ceiling just because he doesn't work deep into games and he doesn't have a third reliable pitch behind his fastball and his slider. Um, so I understand that sentiment a little bit, but it's fairly obvious now that the Marlins desperately need him in the rotation if they're going to do anything interesting this year. Uh, someone to, to revisit, of course, as we get later in the year and more likely in the offseason once you have these next wave of pitchers ready for the big leagues. Um, what other guy did I want to touch on? Um, I guess with Miguel Rojas, uh, that feels about right, but it's not really relevant. I mean, he's someone that you just can't imagine trading under any circumstances because of what he means to this team and this community. And the fact that he just, despite all um, track record of guys reaching a certain point in their aging curve and dropping off, that we have not seen that drop off for him at all to this point. So he's great. But with the Marlins, when you're talking about potential shakeups to this roster, um, you're generally talking about moving the older players to clear room for this next wave of talent. So I mentioned, of course, about Jesus Sanchez and trying to find a role for him on the major league roster, that barring an injury, the only way that he's going to truly play every day is if you clear out one of these older corner bats, and those being Garrett Cooper, Jesus Aguilar, Corey Dickerson, and Adam Duvall where Dickerson is on an expiring contract. Adam Duvall has a mutual option in his contract for next year that, uh, that as things are going, that might be something that teams would be interested in actually picking up along with Duvall himself. But I guess, generally speaking, you would put him in that same bucket as an expiring deal. Jesus Aguilar uh, performing at such an exceptional level that he might be someone that is tendered a contract in arbitration next year, despite a big raise incoming. Also the potential though, for him to be a non-tender candidate if he does regress a little in the power department as this season goes on. And of all these players, Garrett Cooper is the only one that has somewhat significant surplus value, according to baseball trade rumors. They have him 
based all trade values. They have him at 3.3 million as of this recording. Got off to an awful start, but has been ticking up recently, uh, similar to Brian Anderson, not showing power though, and that's a big red flag that he's getting on base a lot more consistently. Um, and that's something you kind of expected eventually, but the fact that he still isn't barreling the ball at all is a red flag for someone that is a liability defensively in right field for sure, and a liability as a base runner as well. So with him, his value is down a little bit since the start of the year. I think during the offseason, he was in the $6 million range. It's tough to be entirely sure with this site, but he's certainly down from the start of the year, and understandably, you're just not going to get a whole lot back in return for uh, that type of player, but you'll get something at, at three at three million dollars of surplus value. I mean, that could be multiple prospects, if not a top 100 prospect, and um, but maybe someone that scratches the bot, the top 30 in your organization. That's so that's one thing to keep in mind to put this into perspective. That guys at the bottom end of like the Marlins top 30 list, for example, the, generally baseball trade values has them at one million, two million, three million dollars, something like that. That um, once you get that deep in these guys that you can't reliably reliably project as regular players at the next level that have that upside, but um, their like median outcome is a reserve player or a guy that goes up and down that those are the type of players, potentially more than one, that you could get in return for Cooper. Despite his struggles to this point in the season, the fact that he can play multiple positions and with half the league having that flexibility of a designated hitter, that that he still brings something to the table on the market. On the other side of the equation, I mean, we'll finish off with this, is that the gaping hole with this Marlins team right now is at the catcher position, both in the near term and for the foreseeable future. With Jorge Alfaro, he's coming back from his injury, and we'll see what happens. But we're going to have at least close to two full months to evaluate what Alfaro looks like back in his role as a primary catcher. If it looks like what it did last year and what it did at the early portion of this year, where he's simply a bad offensive player and, uh, I guess, charitably a slightly above-average defensive player, that I mean, that's that's a guy that you wonder if he has any future with the organization. Are they going to be again tendering him a contract in arbitration somewhere north of two million dollars? Is he worth it? If he's now several years removed from being an impact hitter, that that there's going to be some urgency, especially if this team sees itself as a contender down the stretch of this year, and especially in 2022, that you need to upgrade. You need to add somebody that even if you're not ready to ditch Alfaro entirely, maybe shift him into the backup role or as a part-time DH in anticipation of the universal DH. Though The name that's been on everybody's mind uh, dating back to the early offseason was the Cubs' Wilson Contreras, who is currently at 21.1 baseball trade values. So again, I gave you all those Marlins names. That's pretty similar to Brian Anderson, for example. Contreras is one year closer to free agency. He's more expensive, but he plays a more premium position, and he has been a little bit more consistent offensively than Anderson has right about the same age those two guys are. So uh, the big key when we've been talking about Contreras is whether or not the Marlins would be willing to, would be prepared immediately to offer him some sort of contract extension to keep him through his prime. And so that's still a very big question. 
As we're recording this, the Cubs are basically in the same boat as the Marlins this season. They've, they've been hovering slightly below 500. They have some key star players that you love, um, but they also have some obvious holes, and um, they are a, a few games off the pace in their division. So it is certainly a possibility that by the time we get to July that they are in sell mode, and you could see some interesting deal happening there. But if you have Contreras priced at $21 million, how do you build a trade package to get him um, for a team that in the in the Cubs that are again potentially staring into the beginning of a long rebuild, they're not going to want these older players that the Marlins are have their own selfish interest in switching out and clearing room for. Uh, a potential centerpiece in that trade if he's healthy by then, and Edward Cabrera is going to be throwing his first bullpen session in a while this any day now as he begins ramping up. He's he, someone that at $16 million in current trade value, that he he alone could be stand, make a big impact in terms of like making it a fair deal. It's almost a one-for-one one trade, basically, when you look at their current trade values. That'd be a fascinating tra- challenge trade because Cabrera's ceiling is as high as almost any other pitcher in the Marlins organization. That's saying something. But with his injury concerns and the fact that he hasn't proven anything at the major leagues yet... That, that's a candidate to be a centerpiece in a Wilson Contreras deal. But then there's a pretty big drop-off, as we mentioned, until you get to the next prospect. So um, by the time that we get to this trade scenario, I'm almost certain that Jesus Sanchez will be in the major leagues for all the reasons discussed earlier. And, that, and if he's, doing, if he's having, having any sort of success, then the Marlins won't want to trade him because they, again, they have those big uh, looming holes in their outfields at this stage of the year, and they don't know exactly, they're just already in that process of trying to clear space for those young guys, not trying to trade the young guys themselves. Uh, The one name that we didn't bring up yet as a Marlins trade candidate would be Starling Marte. He still seems to be multiple weeks away from getting dealt, and he has the highest salary of all these players involved. That is such a big ingredient in approximating trade value. Um, Maybe he comes back and he's immediately tearing up the ball the way he was earlier this year. Uh, otherwise, he just doesn't have much more trade value than than Cooper does, than uh, Aguilar does, just because he is a pending free agent. And we've seen there's been a shift in Major League Baseball in terms of how to properly value those guys that are coming up on free agency. In all likelihood, he, he would not bring back a huge return all on his own unless the Marlins find themselves eating most or all of that remaining contract. And so that's a conversation for another day about Marte and him as a potential extension candidate in Miami and sticking around for the long term, uh, shifting eventually into a corner spot and, and all of that. In terms of other catchers that are out there, one who's been really underrated is Jacob Stallings of the Pirates, currently on baseball trade values at $5 million in surplus. So that's really attainable. I mean, we were reading up the most valuable uh, players in the Marlins organization, and we kind of cut it off at 7.6. So you go really far down the pipeline to uh, to get proper value for a catcher at $6 million. I mean, at $5 million. Griffin Conine is currently at 4.5. So a one-for-one to get Stallings, who is older than Contreras, but more controllable and a lot more inexpensive. I mean, he still has three more years of control beyond the season. He is now building quietly a good track record of getting on base, which is what the Marlins, if nothing else, that's what they want offensively from their catcher, somebody that lengthens the lineup to some degree and gives you a shot at generating more runs. And that's what they've been missing uh, really for the last couple years at the position. 
So maybe as this year goes on, Stallings, we get closer to the deadline that his value is more properly adjusted in BTV. Um, and you end up in a situation where the Marlins might have to be making a more difficult call in terms of what prospect it would cost to get him. Being on the Pirates, he's someone that you know almost certainly will be available for the right price. A really bold deal that they could consider is something around Cabert Ruiz on the Dodgers. His name was connected to the Marlins in JT Real Muto trade talks as a potential centerpiece. Since then, he's gotten a couple cups of coffee in the major leagues at the catcher position, but unfortunately for him, the Dodgers have Will Smith embedded as that primary guy for the long haul. And Will Smith being, well, he's obviously untouchable considering that the Dodgers are in right in the middle of their World Series contention window. And Ruiz is somewhat of a surplus player for them, but currently in baseball trade values at $25 million in surplus value. So that's, that's a lot. I mean, there's, as we mentioned, only a handful of players in the Marlins organization right now that would really match up with that unless you're willing to part with a handful of players at one time and make it a really big package in order to get Ruiz. Um, and with the Dodgers, even though they obviously have a good understanding of why it's important to have organizational depth, they'd also want little bit pieces to plug in at the major league level to make sure that they um, reach their October aspirations. So all these particulars are things to be revisited later in the year because, first of all, the Marlins will need to choose a direction uh, that they want once we get to the trade deadline. It's still early enough. There's been enough encouraging signs and enough red flags that you could see this going in either direction. Um, To finish off, though, I mean, I've like harped on this several times that um, the Marlins this year, I feel they missed an opportunity to build their strongest team possible just by not spending money that they entered this year approximate opening day payroll around $60 million. And since then, they've gotten an influx of cash from Bally Sports Florida and from Lone Depot um, from those television deals and that naming rights sponsorship that once we get to the deadline, they should be a team more than anybody else that is willing to, if they're trading veterans, to eat some or all of the money remaining on those contracts. And if they're going to be acquiring players to help them contend right now that they should not in any circumstance be scared away by players that have a lot of money still owed to them from their from their other teams that they should be willing to take on that money if it means preserving some of their farm system depth and if it means plugging any apparent holes with the team that they have down the stretch this year or in 2022 and beyond a lot of opportunities out there to uh, it's going to be a fun summer i think that's the word i keep coming back to recently i was on a mets podcast moving into this upcoming series to preview that and the first word out of my mouth is that this has been fun to follow the marlins this year because of the wide range of possibilities because of the stardom at the top of the roster and the potential stars that are about to break through for the first time or to really solidify themselves Thank you, as always, to Symbol for sponsoring our podcast. And I'll be back on Monday, uh, probably with a solo pod, but then later in the week, going to have some guests as usual. In the meantime, be sure to check out our series preview live stream of the Marlins and Mets. 
uh, this weekend. It's going to be on Twitter and Twitch and YouTube an hour prior to first pitch on Friday, 6.10 Eastern time. We'll be joined by my buddy RM Layden, the host of Locked On Marlins, to take your questions and talk about all the hot issues at that time. And of course, we'll have our small pod on Friday morning from AT Wardall, as usual, to get you caught up on all the storylines heading into that series as well. We got you covered. We got the farm system covered. We've on all our platforms. Be sure to follow us wherever you can find the name Fish Stripes. We appreciate the support. Uh, rate and review the podcast, please. Subscribe wherever you get it. As always, go fish. Go fish.